Are you a fire instructor or training officer eager to elevate your career? Inside the Modern Fire Instructor Pro Membership, you can leap beyond department limitations. Inside MFI Pro, you'll immerse yourself with monthly expert-led training, live bi-weekly Zoom Q&As, and an exclusive community of like-minded peers. You'll also have 24-7 access to our extensive and purpose-built resource library to help you stay ahead of your peers. Ready to ignite your full potential? To learn more, click the link in the show notes or head to trymfi.com. That's trymfi.com to begin your journey right now with a seven-day free trial. And when you sign up, make sure to use coupon code PODCAST to receive 40% off your monthly membership forever when you decide to stay. Secure your future, invest in yourself, and invest in MFI Pro at trymfi.com. Now back to the show. Welcome to the Modern Fire Instructor Podcast, where we tap into the wisdom of experienced professionals on topics like fire training, leadership, and learning. I'm your host, Rob Candle. Join me as we uncover actionable insights that you can use to grow your skills as an instructor, make you more effective, and help you leave a lasting impact on those you serve. Today, my guest is Mark Hurst. Mark has a master's degree in computer science from MIT and is the founder of Creative Good a New York-based consultancy and creative platform that he began in 1997. Mark is a writer, speaker, and advisor to teams about how to create better products and services. We spoke to Mark about his book, Bit Literacy, Productivity in the Age of Information and Email Overload. Inside today's episode, Surviving the Tsunami of Data, The Freedom of an Empty Inbox, Sanity as the First Priority, The Underappreciated Power of Simplicity, and bad habits that are likely slowing you down. Let's get curious and dive in. I think I'd like to start with um, the interview with the same way that you started the book. And it just so happened that uh, a few weeks ago, I picked up one of my favorite books, which is Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And I started reading again. I read this book back in college. And I reached out to you for the interview and we got it set up. And it was just recently that I happened to thumb to the front of the book and saw that you opened the book with a quote from Robert Persig. So the the book opens with the with this passage. The Buddha resides quite as comfortably in the circuits of a digital computer or the gears of a cycle transmission as he does at the top of a mountain. So I thought we'd just kick off the interview with that. I'm really curious just personally. Um, how and why you chose to open your book with that passage. <laughs> uh, well, first, uh, Rob, thanks for having me on the podcast. It's, it's a real pleasure to be here. And I'm delighted that you found Bit Literacy to be a help uh, when you read it and some of your colleagues have, have read it along the way as well. Um, it's funny you bring up the Robert Persig book because Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance is one of my still all-time favorite books. I also read it, uh, I think it was just after college. So after at, at an impressionable age, mm-hmm. <laughs> I read the book. And one of the things that struck me about the book was this idea of quality, as Persig writes about it in the book, as this ineffable phenomenon that cannot be computed, calculated, controlled, predicted, or locked down in any way. 
And this idea of of quality again in in the, in the sense that it, that word is used in in Persig's book has been an area of interest for me over the years. And that you know here we have have built these machines and systems that are designed for lockstep calculation and synchronization of everything. And yet the the thing that people and organizations are really after is this thing that often cannot be calculated or computed. Uh, you may have to use the machine along the way to help you get there, but you can't get there solely through the machine. And I didn't really go that deep into this idea in bit literacy, but I think that was along the lines of what I was thinking when I when I wrote those words back around 2007. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, very interesting. Um, we won't get too far, too much further into uh, that book. So, so let's transition to bit literacy. And um, for those of our listeners who have no idea what bit literacy is, um, can you? Tell us what bit literacy is, who's it for, and why should a fire officer or a firefighter care about bit literacy? Well, I'm, I'm going to defer to you for question number three, because um, you know the answer to that a lot better than I do. I can give a guess. But as for, as for um, what bit literacy is, uh, back in 2007, I published this book called Bit Literacy, Productivity in the Age of Information and Email Overload. 2007. So that's pre-Facebook. It's pre-iPhone, pre-social media, pre-Twitter, which is now called X for some reason. Um, <laughs> Pre-all this stuff that has, that has come after. But uh, I've been an internet consultant for over 25 years now. And back in those days, I knew that we were going to be facing a wave, more than a wave, a tsunami of digital information coming at all of us individually and collectively on our teams and in organizations. And we had to have some basic skills in order to survive this tsunami of data. Um, for a long time in the 1990s and early 2000s, we heard about computer literacy people would say, I'm not computer literate. And by that, they meant, I don't, I don't know how to use a, a, a laptop computer, a mouse or, or a printer or something. And I thought in the early 2000s, you know what we need is, we don't need skills of computer literacy because people can learn how to use a mouse and a menu Windows system in an hour. Really the skills that we need in order to survive this, this next so so many decades in the information age is is a set of skills for managing our sanity first and maybe our productivity second in the face of this onslaught of information and nobody was talking about this in the early 2000s nobody and i had been training my team at my consulting firm on some very basic skills of email management and to-do list management and how to name files and stuff like that. And I thought it'd probably be helpful if I wrote this down and got it out there in book form and, um, 
just very, very basic skills. So that's the idea behind the book, Bit Literacy, and the and and the idea that it refers to is that it is a set of skills for managing your information, both what you have coming into you and what you send out to the world and how you store information. Just those those buckets of skills um, with managing digital information in order to do your job better and and ultimately to live your life better. How did you have a background in computer science, right? You went to MIT and... That's right. I have a bachelor's and master's in computer science from MIT. How did you come to learn bit literacy or um, develop those, what you refer to as basic skills that you trained your team on? Well, I, I pretty much invented these skills. Um, I, I was, I was in the, this early generation of people who were, I don't know if you could exactly say we were pioneering online business, uh, but we were we were certainly engaged with using the internet for work very early on. I mean, um, as of 1995, I left school and and joined a joined a company outside New York City. And then, as of 1997, I had started my own company, which I still run. It's called Creative Good. And so, I had to figure a bunch of stuff out really quickly because the there were no tools. I mean, these days there's tens of thousands of apps um, for mobile phones, all claiming to solve this or that productivity issue. But back in those days, there was nothing. And I had always felt like uh, I would cobble together my own system, my own way, uh, and, and chart my own path. That's That's just always been my independent streak. And over the years, I, my company took off a little bit and I started hiring employees. Uh, and I eventually, I, I made it contingent on employment. If they wanted to work at Creative Good, I told them, you are required to learn these skills. And I will teach you, but it's going to be a way of using your computer that you've never used it before. People you know, a lot of them had been to business school. They'd say, what is this? You know, one of the things I taught them very early on was to get their email inbox empty at least once a day. So this idea that's now popularly known as, as inbox zero, that's a term that a guy named Merlin Mann came up with. Um, I was teaching my employees as of the late 1990s exactly how to do this. I don't know if that makes me the inventor of what became inbox zero. Maybe someone else is doing it out there, but I know I was early on. Um, and as I taught, you know how it is, as you teach a skill, it, you, you get to know it a little better. And I codified it and had some terms and some processes around it. And that eventually got me to the point where I was ready to write the book. This is just so interesting to me to hear from you, somebody that has the background in computer science and, um, and that it seems as, as computers came on the scene, we were enamored with um, what it meant to use a computer and 
what we could do with it, this new way of doing business and performing work, but an underappreciation for the very simple but very necessary tactics to manage that information. Because it's very easy to create a document. It's very easy to let your inbox fill up and send messages off and receive messages. But being able to be productive is dependent upon being able to find that information and when you need it. And that's what bit literacy is to me. Would you agree that that's a good basic definition of bit literacy? Yeah, that's, that's very good. In fact, I like what you're bringing up there as a distinction between thinking about the computer and the, the hardware and the software versus looking at the information that you're dealing with. Um, that's a key distinction. I, in fact, I, I failed to bring that up in my definition earlier. So thanks for bringing it up. Well, would, you, uh, you did there. talk about computer literacy versus bit literacy. Yeah. So, and that's really what it's, what I was getting at. And, and still that distinction is lost um, today. People walk around and say, well, I have the iPhone 13 or whatever the number is. Now I can't, I can't keep up with whatever the latest iPhone or Android latest phone model is called. I have this. I have this many megapixels in my camera. I have the new M2 chip in my device or whatever it's called. All of those are marketing terms, marketing-oriented aspects of the device that really are there to benefit the company. And good for the companies trying to do their marketing. That's they're they're doing their own job. That's okay. But for us, the users, and I mean both individually and as part of teams like you are in the fire service, we have to look beyond the shiny device or computer or how fast the chip is. We have to set aside the, the company marketing and say, what are we really using this for? And very quickly, you see, it comes down to the bits or the data, if you want to call it that instead. And exactly what you said, are we, are we able to access the data we need at the moment we need it? And when we don't need that data, is it hidden away somewhere so it's not overwhelming us at every second? And, you know, Rob, the tools even today are not built for that. <laughs> They're not built for our productivity. The tools made by the tech industry are built largely to sell more products for the tech industry <laughs> or to keep you subscribed or in some really nefarious cases to actually keep you addicted. We as users have to set all of that aside and say, we're here to get a job done and we want to get it done accurately and we want to get it done quickly so that we can put these things away and get back to life off the screen, which is, which is more important than what we do on the screen. So, yeah, the, the, just echoing what you said, the, the skills of bit literacy are really an attempt to focus people on, think about the bits, the data that you're sending, you're receiving, you're storing. What kind of skills do you need to develop and perfect in order to do that well with the data? Because if you do that well, it really doesn't matter what 
phone you use, <laughs> if you're, you're working your, your data well, your outcomes are going to be great, both as an individual and as a team with those skills. You make an interesting dis- distinction where you talked about early on the tens of thousands of apps and, you know, all the features and functions. And, and you've also used another word. Let me pause for a second. The distinction that you made was sanity first and productivity second. And to me, there's this productivity obsession and it, a lot of that productivity is rooted in too much complexity, right? That I've got this process and these, a lot of um, functions and the latest, you know, uh, capability with a software or with an app and thinking about productivity in the context of a bigger picture that includes your personal sanity and um, is where I think simplicity comes in. Not having to keep track of complexity. And you mentioned not being able to keep track of the latest chip. And that that made me feel good because you're a computer guy. <laughs> I I learned how to comp- use a computer after leaving college on my own, bought a computer and started creating files and figuring it out on the go and created all kinds of bad habits. And it works for you until you get into a situation where you've got so much information to deal with that those bad habits, you start to pay the price for them. So I've learned that simplicity more often than not is going to be the um, part of the solution rather than trying to take advantage of every latest function or all these capabilities that software can provide. Yeah, there's there's this term online called productivity porn. You ever heard that? It's, there yeah. are these blogs that go on about 10 new tips for X, Y, and Z. And you're supposed to subscribe to these blogs so that every day you get 10 more tips. And very quickly you realize they're in the business of getting people excited about tips, about the idea of productivity, but they're not actually trying to get people productive. Because if you want to get people productive, you put down the tips and get your work done. Yeah. (laughs) That's the definition of productivity. So yeah, the, the simple... I like what you're bringing up, this this difference between the the simple, straightforward path versus this complicated, often very exciting, glittering path of all these options and features yeah. and everything. I'm not interested in that. Right. Which you and I, Rob, are not in step with the tech industry. So in a way, I'd say I'm in a way, I would say I'm also not a computer guy, so so to speak. Because I'm not, I'm not in step with every new product release and everything else. I look at digital technology as a means to an end. Um, and specifically for the work you do in the fire service, my goodness, how important your work is. The last thing I would want is for a screen or some digital menu or set of features to impede your path, your team's path to saving someone, doing the work, the important work that you do. So sanity first, productivity second, maybe in this case we should say fire service first, productivity second, or fire service first, computer second. You see, I'm just, I'm trying to say that these digital tools are by definition, they are subservient 
to whatever it is that your team is working on. Yeah. And that's a really important attitude for, for, for people and teams to adopt, to say, these tools serve us, not the other way around. And as soon as they're done serving us, we turn them off, we put them away, and we go do the rest of our work or we live the rest of our lives. Once again, that is the opposite of how the tech industry's business models operate. They want to inculcate themselves into every aspect of our lives. What they would say is, oh, you're from the fire service. Well, what kind of apps could we develop so that you're using an app here and there and you know, more devices and more processes and more features and more everything as you're going through your work? The complexity starts crushing in again. Mm-hmm. I think the better approach is to say, no, no, no. The best technology is the one that does its job quickly and unobtrusively and simply and then gets out of the way so that we can turn it off for a while and, and continue on without it. Not one that inserts itself into our lives. Um, it's, a, it's a kind of rebellion to adopt some of these skills and bit literacy because uh, you, are, you are running counter to the interests and the motivations of trillion, in some cases, multi-trillion dollar companies. It kind of feels good to operate that way. <laughs> There's a number of rebels in the fire service that can probably identify with that. Um, the good news is that bit literacy is so simple, right? It's the, a lot of times the software that is being advertised to trying to get us to use is a lot more complicated. It's actually work to learn how to use it, to do all the things they say you need to learn how to do. And kind of my own personal uh, mantra that I find myself repeating on occasion is just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should. Just because that feature, that function is available to you doesn't mean that you should be spending any time using it. Because like you said, What's the mission? What are you trying to accomplish? And the tools are subservient to that mission, not the other way around where you're trying to spend your time more work figuring out how to use this tool. Are you even sure that you need to be using it in the first place? But the good news is that the skills and the the practices in bit literacy are so simple to use, but so effective. And so I'd like to spend a little time um, in two areas for sure. I want to talk a little bit more about email because I think that's something that everyone can relate to. The you mentioned mentioned a tsunami, right? The the email overload, and despite the fact that we have that concept of inbox zero out there, a lot of people don't follow that. And can you speak a little bit to the um, the practice of using your email as an inbox? Because I know that I have worked with people who have thousands of emails in an inbox and are using that as a way of planning their day. Sure. I mean, that I'd say many, maybe even most people out there, Rob, use their email inboxes for those purposes. I've seen thousands of emails in an inbox. I've seen tens of thousands. And in a few cases, I've seen hundreds of thousands. And the, the larger the number, the more proud the person is <laughs> to that's, show it off. That's been my experience too. <laughs> Look at me, because they say, see, I don't, I don't need to empty this. And I'll say, by way of preface, um, I've learned over the years, 
people are very territorial uh, and they can be very sensitive when it comes to suggestions about how to use their email. I don't know what it is, but there's something very personal about how people use their email. Like maybe it's, you know, this is my own part of the screen. No one else can read this. These are my own messages. What I do with them is my own business. So I want to acknowledge that, um, that what I'm going to say, some people are going to have a, a negative reaction to it. <laughs> I hope not a violent reaction, but some people just say, I'm not doing it. There's no way. And that's fine. That's fine. But for people who feel like their current um, way of working with email is not working for them and they're open to an alternative, maybe this is for you. So as I said, back in the 1990s, um, I started practicing myself and then I started teaching others how to empty their inbox at least once a day. And I'll just say, even today, and I have a collection of news stories where journalists and people they quote all say, you can't do this. It's impossible. There's no way to, inbox zero is impossible. And I go, I don't know what to tell you. I've been doing it for over 20 years and I've taught other people how to do this. The reason why it's really important to get, and when I say zero, I mean read and unread messages down to zero the reason is, if you don't get it to zero, then the next day you have a few more, and the next day you have a few more, and the next day you have a few more, and after a year you're back up to thousands of messages, all screaming for your attention. So if you get it down to zero once a day, then it can never get up to thousands of messages. Um, the key in emptying the inbox is... Look, there's some things you can delete right away. There's some things that maybe I'll get to these later, meaning I will refer to these later. Like I'll, re I'll, read, I'll read these notes again later. You can maybe put them in a folder or in an archive. A lot of email services have a just a general archive. And then you can search for that email later and find those notes. So it's, it's still in storage, but it's just out of the inbox. The difficult bit of managing email, as it turns out, is the action items. Because when you get 20 emails, let's say you're able to filter out 10 of them, you delete five and you archive five, you still have 10 action items. Some of them are small, some of them are larger, some of them you don't need to think about for a few days, and some of them you can't because you need some other information before you can even start working on it. So it's this jumble of action items. If there was only, Rob, if there was only a place where you could put those action items and get them out of the inbox, a place that could manage action items more effectively than a chronological listing in an inbox, then we'd have an empty inbox and then we could work off of those action items elsewhere. So coming to this realization in the early 2000s, and this is, this is one bit of the book that some people have a problem with, is that I created my own to-do list. It's an online to-do list. And I wrote about it in the book. And so people say, oh, you have that chapter that's advertising your own product. Well, there's a lot of to-do lists now uh, since 2007. So you could choose any online to-do list you want. Mine is called Good To Do. It's at goodtodo.com. But my, my point in the 
the email chapter, which leads into the to-do list chapter, is in order to empty your inbox, you've got to get the action items out of the inbox and onto a to-do list somewhere else so that you can manage them. Manage them by priority, take notes on them, maybe put them in categories, and most importantly, be able to sort them by day because they only um, become relevant either today or in the future. Good to-do does all of this, and there are some to-do lists out there that that have most of those features. Um, the The practice then of emptying the inbox is once a day, it could be in the morning, it could be last thing before bed, it could be multiple times a day if you want. You come up with your own strategy. Everybody's Everyone's different. But at least once a day, get all the action items onto the to-do list, archive the things that you can archive that you may refer to again, delete all the spam and everything else, and it's zero. And there's something, if you haven't experienced it, you don't know what it feels like, but I'm just telling you what other people have told me, and I quote some people in the book, it's a categorically different experience to look at an empty inbox because there is absolutely no overwhelming emotion or overload at all. You're looking at emptiness and it's a, it's a strange feeling because you say, I have, there is no, there's no pressure on me from this inbox at all when it's zero and you can't hide from your work because you know where your work actually resides. It's over on the to-do list. And when you look over the to-do list, it says, here's the things you're supposed to be working on. You go, gosh, darn it. I guess I'll get some work done. No more fooling around in the inbox. So yeah, both, there's, yeah go ahead. No, there's something, there's something um, when you have that, that inbox of, it doesn't have to be a thousand or, or 10,000 emails. If you have 50 emails in an inbox as a, as a training officer, let's say, it creates like a little window of doubt in your mind, right? You're like, am I on top of things or is it possible that I've overlooked something? Cause you've got these 50 emails and 50 is a conservative number, but even with just 50 emails, is there something in there that I need to be paying attention to? So you're almost distracted. This like this low grade chronic distraction. You can't be completely certain that you haven't missed something. And maybe you're wasting time each day scrolling through there, making sure nothing's slipping through the cracks, as opposed to being able to, as you mentioned, deal with it each day, put it where you know you'll see it when you need it, and then having the confidence to know that everything's where it should be. And then being able to focus on the task at hand. Yeah, that's that's a that's a really important point, Rob. The experience of a of a jumbled inbox is is very uncomfortable. Sometimes when I come back from vacation, you know, it takes me a couple of days to get back on track. And it's just like you said, you go, man, I know there's probably something in this list that if I don't act on it, it's going to bite me. Yeah. And so you're opening up email after email after email. And I go, man, I don't like this. I'm wasting time reading yeah. the same 20 emails 10 times during the yeah. day. Um, Every day. <laughs> every day and that's people's and people have told me that just exactly what you said rob people have told me that it's a low grade anxiety throughout the day because they 
they don't know what they're missing that's that's lurking in the inbox that's going to get them in trouble. But they don't have any power over it. What are they supposed to do? The, the only thing they can do is go through those 20 or 50 emails again and again. Some people use color coding. Some people um, will find an important email and they'll turn it back to unread. And that's their signal that they need to look at that again. There's all these little tricks, but in the end, they they, they really don't have control over it. Now, I will yeah. say that the tech industry has promised to solve this for people. They're always swooping in and saying, leave it to us. What they're really saying is, abdicate your own personal responsibility and let let our algorithms tell you what to think about. So Google over the years has come up with various schemes in Gmail. We will bubble up the important emails for you. So don't worry. Don't delete anything. Don't take anything out of the inbox. Just let it grow and grow and grow to millions of emails. And we will bubble up the ones that you should be looking at. And I just, I always think what a, what an Orwellian situation. You really want a $2 trillion company telling you what you should be thinking about minute mm. to minute? I mean, for someone in the fire service, you know, their life's on the line. You really want Google. You want to give Google the responsibility of telling you what's important in that inbox. There is no way that I'd like Google or any other company tell me what I'm supposed to be thinking about. I can I can manage myself, thank you. But but people need those skills in order to break out of that cycle of anxiety uh, that you were referring to, Rob. They've they've got to have these skills to move the action items elsewhere. Yeah, it gets back to what I think we were talking about when we opened. It's just an underappreciated skill. It's an underappreciated need to manage that information, not to just to create it and see it and know that it's there, but to manage it with a system that is simple and sustainable and gives you the confidence to know you're working on the right thing at the right time. That's right. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. Um, so your book goes into detail um, on, for if people want to dig deeper into that, the book goes into detail about how to um, do some of the things you just talked about. The other thing that I would like to have you spend a little time with us on is files. Because I know as a fire, as a fire training officer, I had hundreds of files from multiple programs uh, that I'm responsible for. And, and you might not work on a program for months and being able to, when it comes time to work on that program, being able to have everything I need where I need it so I can begin work and not have to try to find things, try to reorient to what the project is or that nagging doubt. Like I know, I think I've lost something. I'm, I can't be sure that I have everything that, cause I haven't thought about this program in months. So can you speak a little bit about um, how bit literacy handles the creation of files and the organization of files. Well, sure. Um, I want to just say again, by way of preface, this book I wrote in 2007. So this was pre a lot of things that have happened in the last 16 years. These days, my wife and I have a, have a son who's in high school. Um, he, <laughs> he and his classmates in high school 
don't really create files. They, I'm not even sure they they know what a file is. Mm. Hierarchical file system that doesn't even doesn't even come into their their day to day workflow because at least in his school everybody's on Google Docs and every doc it's not a file it's a doc now and docs just live somewhere in the cloud and you can have multiple people operating on it and it changes minute to minute and nobody can ever find anything but that's a, that's a whole other conversation so i just want to give a uh, a nod of acknowledgement that a lot of people especially younger people are used to a world without f- files as you and i know them without hierarchical file systems and without a place to live because they're just dumped somewhere in a cloud somewhere. What you're talking about, which I I prefer, I'm old school. I like what you're saying. You have a project. You, what I say in bit literacy, sounds like you do this. When you have a project, you create a folder. You give the folder the name of the project. And then every file that is created either by you or someone else that has to do with that project goes into that folder. So already we have localized the, the search area, if you will, or the browse area. If we need to find a file within that project, we know it's in this folder because we're, we're always going to put it in that folder. And all the project folders live on one level under a, a parent folder. So it's, it's really easy. It's like, all of our files are in the, I don't know, the documents folder or the team folder, whatever. And under that is all the project folders, boom, 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 alphabetized. And then there's the project. We open it up. Okay. Now within the project folder, you have all the files, all in one project folder. Um, some people make an exception for emails. Maybe they have emails in an archive that or in a, mail folder and the email program elsewhere. That's a separate issue. But beyond that, uh, Word documents, spreadsheets, aka Excel files, PowerPoints or other presentation documents, text files that could be saved off emails. All of those live together in the project folder. And someone might say, well, doesn't that get jumbled with all of these files be a gnarly kind of assemblage well no because there is a file naming scheme the creator's initials followed by the date of creation followed by a one to three word description of the file followed by the file extension so my notes for today's meeting with you rob could be mh today's date um Notes with Rob.txt, for example. So if you if you sort all the files in the project folder by name, right away you can see all the files I created, all the files you created, and so on. Um, if you sort by date, then you're going to get it sorted by the creation date of the files. And usually by sorting with sorting by name and by date you can triangulate pretty quickly down to the file that you need. And then I, I also, I think I mentioned this in the book, I recommend putting in a, an old folder. So 
um, files that are no longer active, but you want to just have them kind of in an archive, you throw them in the old folder so that you you keep them that main level of the project folder pretty well pruned to what is still relevant. Um, this also solves the problem of final presentation version two final final really final dot pptx. How many times have people seen that? I still see it. Every, I mean, everywhere. And these are, I see it at companies that should know better. <laughs> yeah. People, people don't know. I mean, that was going to be one of the questions I want to get to, to I'll throw it out and we can come back to it, but just, are we doing better? Right. And it sounds like maybe not when you give yeah. the story of your son's high school, I, I, I held out hope that maybe uh, this is just something my generation was learning because we learned bad habits or, and bit literacy is actually something that is young people today are familiar with, but maybe not. No, there's there's an old joke I saw on social media a few months ago, and it said something like, um, it's too bad that America has created one generation that knows how to use computers, that being Gen X. Um, the joke being that baby boomers were a little too early to, to learn how to use this stuff, and millennials and Gen Z are so young, they're dumped into this Google Cloud situation that promotes all sorts of bad habits. So it's up to you and me, Rob, the Gen X. <laughs> As always, Gen X has to lead the way and come up with a solution. I'm halfway kidding. Um, <laughs> so no, I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think it's gotten any better, but the whole final version to final, final, final dot PowerPoint. If you just use the, the standard naming scheme, if I have, a second and a third and a fourth version of these notes, then it's going to be MH, today's date, notes with Rob, 4.txt. And you'll be able to see at a glance, oh, this was version one, two, three, four. And it's actually helpful. You can you can save off snapshots along the way. And then if something gets lost, you say, oh, bring back version three. I think there's yeah. a piece there that I liked. So there's all of the agita. Who has the... The final, no, not the final, the final, final. I thought you had it. Wasn't it in your email? No, no, no. By the way, this this file management that we're talking about, it works on a team level as well. This is not just individual. I use this all the time. When we had consulting teams going out, there'd be multiple consultants feeding files into a project folder, all named correctly. And when the project was done, uh, it could go a year later and the same client calls back and says, what was it? What was that recommendation you made? Open the project folder. There's the final PowerPoint, which is the, the PowerPoint with the latest date and the highest uh, version no, number. Open no it up. Final, final. <laughs> no, there it is. Bam. No question. Yeah. All it takes, all the, 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 the price for this, and there's so many benefits, but the price is that, the team needs to learn the skill and, and consistently use it as a team. So it's a, it's a very small price. But if you can surmount that obstacle, many of these problems just melt away. The team totally avoids a lot of these problems with files. That's great. Um, one other thing I think is something would be good for us to touch on is folders. And I think you referenced it um, in a general way, but I know you have a feeling about subfolders. 
And it relates to my mantra that I mentioned, right? Just because you can doesn't mean you should. So in the moment, it might seem like a good idea. I'm going to create a subfolder over here to capture all this related stuff. And before you know it, it's very easy to end up situation where you got folders inside of folders that might've made good sense in the moment. But when you're looking for that project six months later, it's, you can't remember where it is. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, everything should be on one level of the folder, uh, unless unless it's it's really beyond the pale, like it's no longer relevant. It's from an older version of the product or, or project. Maybe put it in an old folder. Yeah. Um, but it's it's a very simple system. You know, if you have the file naming, you can have a project folder that spans months of work and has dozens of files. And it's no more complicated than a folder with half a dozen files in it. It's, it's, really, it's really not a problem. Um, once in a while, there's a, there's a kind of a subfolder that you might want to create. The old folder is a good one. Another one is the deliverables folder. When a project is coming to an end, you might create a deliverables folder and put these are all the documents that we actually published or ran with, or these, right. these, these are the finals. And that, that makes it a little bit easier when you go back a year later, open up the deliverables folder. And, but beyond that, I never, I never saw the use of having 22 subfolders and sub subfolders, uh, because I think that's another example we were talking about earlier people go through all of these steps to make it feel like they're being productive. Oh, I'm, I'm getting organized. I'm setting up all these folders. Actually, you're setting yourself up for confusion. Mm-hmm. Um, the less you do here, the, the more you're going to benefit. Just, yeah. just keep it simple. Simple and powerful. The other thing that I'll say is, again, the trend that the tech industry is following right now is for everyone to put all their files up into the cloud where folders don't even exist. I mean, it's just this basically flat file of, 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 of files. It's just in the cloud somewhere and you're supposed to search <laughs> to find the file. Nobody can find anything. You know how people manage? They keep tabs on their browser to each of the docs that they're working on right now. And so they'll, they'll have a browser with 35 tabs open and they'll say, oh, this is the project file for that presentation. It's this tab, click. And I think, how do you live like this? I mean, I, so I'm still a big fan of old school hierarchical folders and files. This, this file system that we had um, back in the earlier decades. And if you do need to have a collaborative document, a Google, to- Google Doc type of thing where multiple people are editing, um, then maybe, maybe put something up temporarily for people to fill something out. But once that's done, you run that off in, and, and publish it Back, save it back into the file system because that's where that thing is going to live. By the way, another nice thing about having a project folder 
is that if you need to give someone all of the files for the project, you get a USB drive. Here's the project folder. And now they're holding it. Now they have a snapshot of that project folder. It's good for backups. Um, you can zip it up and we transfer it to someone if you want to use email to send it. But you simply can't do that if, if they're all integrated in some ethereal cloud somewhere. There's no way to draw them all together into one body and send them. Um, so I would I'd steer away from cloud-based um, project file management, but that puts me in a in a very small minority of of that, people right now. That seems amazing to me just because it seems so untenable to live in the 35 tabs world. Because even if you're able to keep it straight in the moment and you your brain is connected to all 35 tabs and and you're functioning well, you won't be in a month. You won't be in six months when you need to remember that file and where is it and so well, it just, also what happens when the browser crashes and you lose your browser state? Right. What was yeah. I working on? Where are those files? Then they kind of, I mean, I actually don't know how to, I don't really for everything we've talked about, how do people function with those 50 emails that are constantly screaming at them all day? How do people mm -hmm. function without a to-do list? Most people don't have a to-do list. How do people function without a file management system? How do people function without teams adopting some file naming scheme that they're all going to cooperate on? I, I don't know, Rob. I don't know how anything works with digital technology without some of these basic skills. Yeah. Um, are you familiar with Cal Newport's work? Sure. Yeah. I think that bit literacy is just such a wonderful compliment to his concept, both of the deep work, focused work, knowing that you're working on the right thing at the right time. And that's, um, fixed productivity. I'm, I'm miss, missing the term there. Time box planning, I think, which is very much about structure, knowing this is what I'm going to work on when I'm going to work on it. In order to do that, you have to be able to find the product that you're, you're using and, and you don't want to be wasting time looking for it. Yeah. Now I'll, I'll say that Cal is a little more prescriptive than I am when it comes to this stuff. And for people who resonate with his deep work and the digital minimalism, go for it. I, I always say whatever method works for you is the one you should be using. Um, what I've tried to do with bit literacy is to create, again, just a basic set of skills that people can apply in whatever direction they want to apply it. Some people don't want to have structured time. I don't want to sit down and say, I'm doing deep work from 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. They say, look, I'll get to it when I get to it. Or I live in a very chaotic office and it's catch as catch can. I just need some way that my files are going to be there when I need them, however I apply a method or not. And in that case, bit literacy still works. You know, it's a, it's a very simple approach to managing data that works for structured people, it works for unstructured people, it works for teams, works for individuals. Because it's it's not really a method, you know, it's it's pre-method. You can apply something on top of it if you want. Some people love the Pomodoro technique. They swear by the Pomodoro technique, which is the one where you set an egg timer and say, I'm gonna work for 15, was it 15 minutes or 18 minutes? There's like some magic works, number. Yeah, 20. And 20. 
and I'm, I'm not going to be distracted for 20 minutes. Tick, 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 and they go and do that thing. People swear by it. I, you know, great. It's not for me, but it's, if it's for you, that's great. You know what? Literacy will work with a Pomodoro. Some people like David Allen's Getting Things Done. That was a book that people idolized back in the early 2000s. To me, it's too prescriptive. It's got all these labels and you got to do the next step and this and that, the other. There's a lot of, there's a lot of process there, but you can use bit literacy with getting things done. But on whatever method you're using, or if you're not using any methods, you still need some basic skills about how to put things in the right place and achieve emptiness so that you're not being driven crazy. I mean, that's, that's like table stakes. This is all I'm trying to do in, in bit literacy is, Give people the most basic and the most essential skills. And if they want to take it further into one of these productivity gurus, the Cal Newports, the David Allen, the Mr. Pomodoro, who ever came up with that, um, then, you know, go, go forth and, and prosper. But um, you, don't, you don't need to follow any of those in order to make use of these skills. Yeah, it's... Uh... As you were talking there, it just made me think of the basics in the fire service, you know, and we can talk strategy and tactics and the importance of um, of those two items. But it always comes down to basic skills. All of your strategy and tactics are going to be dependent upon being proficient with the bread and butter basic skills, you know, pulling a hose line, using the tools. Um, and so I think. Um, these this administrative side is just too often underappreciated. It sounds like everywhere, <laughs> the fire service, certainly. And so one of the questions we started with, who's this for and why should they care? I think that we've talked a lot about, made it clear how uh, anybody working in administrative capacity in the fire service is going to benefit from these simple, powerful tools that you're teaching in bit literacy. I, uh, I have one one other question I'd like to ask you is we've talked about this being a good system for individuals. And I think we've done a good job of showing how it's relevant, how it can help. And you've also made reference to it also works in teams. What about the individual who is striving to be bit literacy, but is working in an organization unlike yours where everybody's on the same sheet of music and you're in a bit illiterate organization. Nobody's naming anything. Everybody wants to live in a Google doc. Emails are flying at you with unnamed attachments. It's just chaos. Do you have any uh, thoughts or what, what would you say to that situation that somebody finds themselves at work in that type of world? Oh, that's a really, that's a good question. And that's, that's a challenging one because when you're in a, a team atmosphere that has certain um, prescribed workflows, you gotta you gotta play along to be a team player. You, you, I mean, you don't want to get fired. They say you're going to use Google Docs. You better use Google Docs. Um, so the the trick in that case, easy to say but hard to do, is to find where you have some flexibility and carve out. Uh, little areas of better work habits, better bit literate habits um, that you can practice that won't get you in trouble with the rest of the team. Um, for instance, I know some people work in larger organizations um, and they 
still empty their inbox every day and they send their action items to a to a to-do list that's not forbidden by the team. So they're able to maintain sanity, at least in email. Um, maybe there are some documents that only you have to manage that don't have to be shared with the rest of the team. Maybe you can set up a small folder system. But uh, those are going to be localized wins. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's going to be difficult. And I can't even point you to <laughs> teams or large companies that have, have adopted bit literacy. Unfortunately, I wish I wish I could point to companies that I had turned around and they're all practicing these these mm-hmm. skills. But uh, it's it's more it's more the uh, exception than the rule that you would find a place where you could practice these skills. Mm-hmm. It's going to be better for small teams, small organizations, and individual practitioners who have who have more flexibility and more power of choice. Well, this has been a really great conversation, Mark. Um, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show and, and a pleasure to, to meet you. Uh, I told you a little bit before we got started that I found your book life-changing. And when I asked you to come on the show, I, I sent that to you. And then I later when I was reading through your book, I, you actually have something in there that says people that read this book describe it as life-changing. <laughs> so um, I'm glad that we're making this available to uh, the people that were listening to this podcast, because I really do believe that there are some very simple, powerful tools here that can improve your life and change your life, but but make you more effective at work. If you have any administrative responsibility, these are essential tools, I think, to um, making the most of the of the limited time and resources that we often find ourselves with. So thank you very much for your time. And uh, it's been a pleasure. Well, thanks, Rob. I've, I'm really flattered that you reached out and I'm so happy to hear the the book was helpful to you and your team. And look, if, if you, your team members, your listeners have any follow-up questions, they can find me at creativegood.com. And um, I'm happy to answer any follow-up questions there. Okay. We'll make sure to list your, uh, your website and, and links to your book uh, on the show notes so that they can easily access you. Great. Thank you. Keep up right, the good I'll, work. Oh, <laughs> thanks. You too. Uh, Thank you very much. Thanks. As we wrap up, we'd love to hear from you. If you found value in today's episode, please take 10 seconds to leave us a five-star rating and review. It not only helps other fire instructors and training officers discover the show, but it also helps us to create better content for you. Simply scroll to the bottom in your favorite podcast app and hit rate and review. Your feedback means the world to us. Thank you for being a part of our community and we'll catch you in the next episode.